The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody from uh, New York City. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's topic is one that we have dealt with on several occasions. Uh, generally towards the beginning of our run, which was in 2011, but one that's very, very timely and one that I think will interest a large segment of our listenership. We are going to be talking about archaeology and the military. And uh, that's an area that a lot of people are not very familiar with, especially in the lay population. Uh, the military is, in fact, responsible for a large percentage of the archaeological work that gets done, certainly in the United States and in many other countries as well, not just the U.S. military, but also foreign military uh, gets involved with a variety of different kinds of preservation uh projects and un- undertakings based on priorities and, as many of us know, based on cultural resources, preservation, and conservation. Today's uh, group of guests represent a wide array of the military, and uh, we'll be looking at military and and involvement from a uh, a number of different perspectives. Uh, These are particularly interesting to people who had no idea that the military uh, extended into such a wide reach and a wide set of domains. And uh, let me introduce our representatives individually. Uh, I'm pleased to have Dr. James Wild, who is with the U.S. Air Force Civil Engineer Center Cultural Resources Group. Uh, James Wild uh, is worked for the Air Force's Cultural Resources subject matter, uh, subject matter, and he's an expert in that area. He is responsible for archaeology on over 8 million acres in the western United States and has uh, authority on 110 air bases and larger ranges. He also is involved in consultations with Native American groups and tribes, and his particular region of interest is the Great Basin and the Colorado Plateau. Thank you for being here, James. Well, thank you very much. 
Uh, Kristen Mountjoy is a cultural resources specialist with the Army National Guard, Camp Mabry in Austin, Texas. She has uh, the responsibility of heading up cultural resources for the Texas Army National Guard, and her program ensures heritage resources such as archaeological sites and historic buildings, and she is overseeing the management and the efficient performance of activities in compliance with federal and state regulations. She also interfaces extensively with Native American tribes, and as a side note, I, uh, I'm pleased to say that she has experience with working with the late Thor Heyerdahl on excavations on uh, the Canary Islands, and perhaps we'll touch upon that one later. <laughs> Welcome to you, Kristen. Thank you very much. Dr. Duane Quates is a federal archaeologist at the U.S. Army facility in Fort Drum, New York, and he is involved in the management and stewardship of nearly 1,000 historic properties on approximately 108,000 areas of military training lands in northern New York State. He is also a former chairman and the current secretary of a group that is called the Military Archaeology Resources Stewardship interest group called MARS, one of the acronyms, uh, a group that was recently, relatively recently formed by the Society for American Archaeology. And uh, just sort of a cautionary note to my uh, participants, we should try to keep the acronyms down, which is very difficult when you're dealing with any kind of a federal agency, in particular <laughs> the military, but let's do our best to do that. So let me start with you, James. Um, Archaeology and the Air Force, tell us a little bit about how that works as sort of a more general introduction and a more specific introduction to the Air Force in particular and archaeological and cultural resources properties. Okay. It's interesting I, when people ask me what I do and I say I'm an archaeologist and they say, well, where do you work? And I say I work for the Air Force. They always give me a very puzzled look, like why in the world would the Air Force need an archaeologist? But we actually uh, manage, like like you said, uh, it's closer to nine million acres in uh, in the continental United States and Alaska and the Pacific. Um, and on those acres, we have um, something like twenty two thousand archaeological sites already recorded. Um, we've got almost five thousand historic buildings in on Air Force uh, property around the United States and in Alaska, <clears throat> and we deal with about three hundred and sixty. Um, federally recognized American Indian tribes and uh, Alaska Natives plus the five Hawaiian groups that uh, we consult with. So we, we do a lot of things. I just don't do archaeology. In fact, I don't do much archaeology myself. I'm more like a lawyer making sure that the Air Force um, complies with federal law and that we don't get ourselves in any kind of trouble, uh, that every one of the installations follows the National Historic Preservation Act and the Native American Graves Repatriation and Protection Act and things like that. Does does the Air Force have a core group of archaeologists that actually do, do the work, or do they nem normally subcontract out for particular projects that have impacts? Uh, we do both. Um, I'm the subject matter expert, so I'm kind of the top archaeologist or cultural resources specialist in the Air Force, and then um, there's a layer of uh, really good people, professional archaeologists, 
who work for what we call the regional support team, and um, and they're uh, scattered around the United States. There are three of them in the United States, and one in Hawaii, and one in the uh, in Europe. And then we some of the bases, nearly all the bases have cultural resource managers, and most of them are archaeologists. So uh, we all work together as a big team, and um, it, it's interesting that we. As my position, I, uh, I try to help people comply with law and deal with all kinds of what we call brush fires that pop up all the time uh, in any one of those areas. Uh, my friends and colleagues that I work with um, do the same thing, but in, in smaller areas, and, and we collaborate with, with each other all the time. We also mm-hmm. work pretty closely with, with the natural resources people um, because especially tribes are interested in natural resources as cultural resources. Mm-hmm. Kristen, you are with the Army National Guard, Camp Mabry in Austin, Texas. Now, that's uh, uh, one that's a little bit challenging, certainly in the sense that, uh, that James Wilde explained to us. How does the National Guard get involved in archaeology? Right. Well, the way the National for the Texas National Guard, it's challenging because we're a large state, and and the way that we train, um, we actually have several large training sites that are located across the state. And while they may not be as big as a regular army base or a regular air force base, they they have several. Uh, we have 700 archaeological sites total across the state, and so each each site has you know. A, over 100 sites on them. Um, so for us, we the soldiers train on those sites, and they're, they're kind of like, you know, because we're a land management agency, in some ways they're kind of like parks in, in the fact, but they're used for military training. And so um, it's the reason that we exist in our offices, both Jim and, and Dwayne and myself, is that we're here to make sure that we comply with the federal uh, regulations and that as the military goes out and does the training that they need to do, that they do so in a way that doesn't impact the environment or the cultural he- resources that are that are there. So what we do is we try to you know, identify all the archaeological sites in a location or traditional cultural properties, and we try to evaluate those so that we know that uh, not every single site necessarily is going to have the same protection uh, level, and we identify the ones that need to be protected, and, and we work real closely with our internal stakeholders, our soldiers, and make sure that, that they know that they need to be uh, careful and, and conscientious about uh, conducting their training. Are you more involved in conservation, preservation, or actual site discovery, or is it a combination of everything? Kind of like I, for me, because I'm on the ground and I'm actually, I actually do tend to visit my sites. Um, I, I do a little bit of both. So on large-scale projects, we might subcontract to a, a, a company or a university that can provide archaeological services if we have a 1,000-acre survey, which uh, I have an office of myself and one other person, and, and we, can't, we can't handle that all. That would take us a long time. Um, but uh, we certainly go out and we, we visit archaeological sites. We, if we can do small-scale surveys, we do that. We, we monitor conditions. We, you know, will go out if, if soldiers call us and say, hey, we found something, you know, there's, there's something here, we're not sure what it is, we, we ta- we, I'll, you know, jump in the vehicle and, and go take a look. Um, so, so for me, I get a little bit of both. I, I have a little bit of sitting, sitting down in the office and doing a lot of the, the sort of regulatory paperwork, and I get a little bit of the hands-on interaction of, of doing archaeology still. So, so that's great for me. <laughs> 
Dwayne, you are with uh, the training facility at Fort Drum, which is a monstrously large place. Mm-hmm. I've been there before. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, I mean, they, they have, uh, and again, I'm, I'm relatively familiar with that one, uh, because uh, because I'm from New York as well, but they have done some of the more sophisticated archaeological mapping, I think, over the past 10 to 15 years. And I'm just wondering how that pro- program got started and how you run it or how it's run, run internally as well. Well, the program began when the uh, uh, base was built up back in the 80s uh, when they activated the 10th Mountain Division. Uh, or reactivated the 10th Mountain Division. And um, uh, mainly, that originally, that was run under the, the archaeology, was run under the National Park Service, and eventually that was handed over to the Army. And uh, a cultural resources manager was hired um, back in the uh, late 90s. Her name is uh, uh, Lori Rush, and uh, I work with her. Uh, and uh, she's been um, overseeing the... Uh, the inventory of uh, the base over the last uh, 15, uh, 16 years. And uh, so far we've uh, been, um, you know, doing inventory every year uh, where we conduct uh, several, you know, hundred acres of survey uh, in areas that are going to be um, proposed for development. One of the questions I have for all of you, and I'd like you uh, to chime in sequentially if you would, one of the areas that, that it's really interesting, and uh, again, you're, you guys are probably much younger than I am, but certainly when I was in graduate school, nobody ever taught a course called Archaeology in the Military, that's for sure. And um, it, it, it just didn't seem like one of those uh, interdisciplinary elements that would sort of mesh. I was wondering what you guys are noticing in terms of how the archaeological work that you are doing is reflective of higher education, are uh, people working in military bases trained to uh, look at them as units, or do they just sort of undertake military archaeology in very much the same way that they undertake surveys or, or testing programs in other places, and do they get oriented towards the statutes of the military and the guidelines of the military when they go on particular projects? Uh, let me start with you, Dwayne. Well, uh, higher education, uh, since I'm also involved in higher education, I noticed that uh, most of the uh, uh, Classes are still oriented towards what I consider the uh, the works project administration days, where um, most uh, archaeologists are trained to go out and do large blocks um, of excavation for purposes of research. And when they eventually get into the into the uh, um, the, the career field that they're chosen, um, they're struck with the fact that they do not know. Uh, What's required of them in, you know, survey sampling strategies, things of this nature, uh, and they have to learn on the job. So it's, uh, I know that was the case when I was young, um, uh, but uh, I think it is a changing field. A number of uh, universities are now uh, doing applied archaeology programs, and that has been extremely helpful. Um, so uh, hopefully, in the next few years, you know, uh, we'll start seeing more uh, qualified. Uh, field archaeologists as they come into uh, uh, the job market. 
Kristen, I pose the same question to you. Are you seeing a change over time with uh, archaeologists being more equipped, essentially, to do the kind of very baseline archaeological work that's necessary to do, as opposed to, say, 15 years ago when a lot of kids came out of programs and really didn't even know how to do mapping and, and basic archaeological field work? Are you finding that uh, all of a sudden there is uh, more attention being played to, uh, paid to what uh, Duane is calling applied archaeology and that people are hitting the ground running, ready to go, and don't really have to learn in stepwise fashion what what needs to be done yes i i would uh, i would agree with that i know you know i went into a graduate program in the mid 90s and and i chose my program um, because coming out of my undergrad program, when I went and did my first contract archaeology project, I didn't really even know what to show up with. I, I had gone and I had gone to a field school and I and you know done archaeological mapping and training in that. And so when I realized I wanted to go to graduate school, I went and focused on a program that was really going to give me the skill set I needed to do archaeology in this in this environment of working for agencies, whether, whether it be military agencies or, or other, uh, federal or state agencies. And so, um, you know, I, I went and pursued that training and, and like Dwayne said, so many programs now are, are pursuing this applied archaeology concept and it's so beneficial to students. And we were just at the Society for American Archaeology meeting in San Francisco and it was just astounding to see the, that undergraduate students and graduate students that are now coming and not just sort of presenting, like Dwayne said, sort of that traditional academic research model of here's my research on 10,000 lithics. Like they're actually doing a lot of like larger scale, I would say, programmatic or what we would call cultural resource management orientated research. So, you know, for us as land managers, it's a great opportunity for us to review what's being done and find what is a good strategy for our, our programs to be efficient and effective in um, managing the resources. And so I, I think it's, you know, it, it was a, you know, everything has a growth curve, but it's it's been uh, great to see people shift to getting people ready to just go out and do archaeology in, in this modern setting that we're in, in terms of, for, for North America, compliance sort of related activities and, you know, and, and even that goes, can go further afield. It can go, you know, outside of the U.S., uh, and we'll be getting to that uh, after the break. I'd like to talk about some of the initiatives that are being uh, championed overseas. But uh, just to, to close this segment, Jim Wild, you have been around for a while and, and, and you've experienced how these sea changes have occurred in archaeological training. Are you noticing the same trend that uh, finally, I would say, because I'm very biased in this issue, finally we're starting to get a people working on these types of properties that don't need to be uh, taught how to reinvent the wheel, that, that they finally have those technical skill sets that will allow them to go ahead and, and actually do appropriate work at these sites and evaluate sites appropriately. Are you seeing that? Well, I, I am mostly. Um, you're right. I've been around for quite a while. I, I started in the early 70s. Um, but the uh, I've noticed over the last, say, 10 years that, in particular, the writing of uh, from contractors has gotten much better. There was a time there when it was pretty bad. Um, and now I think with all of the new technologies that are available to students, um, unbelievable things that we saw at the SAAs, things that 20 years ago when I last did my, last, my research 
uh, ended when I started working for the for the Air Force. Things that we would have just it would have, they would have been dreams for us to have uh, in the field. But um, I, I don't know. I was a professor for eleven years at a university before I came to the to the Air Force, and it, we taught in several ways. I ran a contract archaeology program, plus I, I taught. Um, archaeology of the southwest and uh, biological anthropology and a bunch of other courses and so what we wanted to do was to give people and students in particular the opportunity to work on contract archaeology projects but also get a broader picture of say the what happened there over the last 10,000 12,000 years so they had some context to put things in so I, I notice now um, it seems that there's kind of a compartmentalization a lot of students who go into a, a uh, let's say an applied archaeology program don't seem to have that those synthetic skills that that we got when we were graduate students. They might be really good at understanding the laws and the, and the state regulations about how to survey, and they are really good at that, and they're they're good at writing reports. But um, I think there's some something has been lost a little bit about tying it all together, and in particular. Uh, what makes a site eligible? It's not just uh, a few things, but how it fits into a regional or, or uh, maybe a local or a geophysical um, re- area that ties it in with something much larger than the uh, the base or the area that's being surveyed or studied. So you're you're saying essentially that in 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 our quest to be more refined technically and to develop greater skill sets we sort of look lose a little bit of that bird's eye perspective that allows us to see big picture types of trends and and look at archaeology in a more holistic sense i guess um that's, that's right that's what i'm saying Okay, well, we will be back with our very distinguished panel and discuss uh, issues in the military and archaeology and cultural resource management right after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Can you dig it, 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 d
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with a segment, a very unique segment on the role of the military in archaeology, not just domestically, but also outside the United States, and specifically, uh, certainly over the past decade plus, in areas of conflict, uh, specifically in Iraq and Afghanistan and other areas in the Middle East and South Asia that uh, the U.S. has a military presence in. Um, Dwayne Quates, you have been involved in what's called the Military Archaeological Resources Stewardship or the MARS Interest Group. Um, I don't know that MARS is such a great acronym. It, it doesn't necessarily bring, bring forth that idea. But why don't you tell us a little bit about that, and then I'd like to talk to all of you about what that means in terms of not only archaeology, but also anthropology and, and cultural connections and in, interdisciplinary work. Uh, Dwayne, what do you, what, give us a little background on that, if you would. Okay, well... Uh, um after I started working for the military, I noticed that uh, when I went to conferences that uh, I really didn't know who the other military archaeologists were. And I would, you know, be told, oh, you need to go look up this person. And I would, you know, put like a, a message on the message board or something. And sometimes it would get answered and sometimes it wouldn't. And I thought it would be really great to have um, some way, some network uh, where we could all get together and talk um, because... These are, you know, the challenges that I'm facing, maybe similar challenges that they're facing, and we can possibly, you know, share solutions. Um, then in uh, 2011, uh, uh, me and uh, my colleague, Dr. Lori Rush, were talking about uh, doing a session at the uh, Sacramento meetings um, in uh, the Society for American Archaeology. And uh, we created, uh, created a discussion forum, and she was... Um, uh, out of country at the time, so um, I organized a session, and it was called Putting Culture into the Fight, Cultural Heritage Protection and Military Operations at Home and Abroad. And um, in the uh, the forum, uh, afterwards we took questions, and uh, Lynn Sebastian was in the room, and she said, I think you sh- you guys should start an interest group. So I did not know how to even do that. And so I basically got up with her afterwards and asked her what the appropriate method to do that would would be. And uh, she said it was very easy, and I just followed her uh, uh, step-by-step directions. And uh, a year later, we had the first exploratory meeting of the uh, Mars Group uh, at the uh, Memphis meetings uh, in 2012. So um, uh, the rest is sort of history. I... uh, Served as the uh, the chairperson for two years, and then uh, this step down uh, at the end of last or after the last meeting in 2014, and we held an election. And now uh, uh, Jim Wild is now the uh, chair or president of uh, the group. 
Well, one of the things I'd like to, um, I would really like to explore here, because I think it's a little provocative, provocative and, and certainly something that uh, I've encountered certainly in the past five or ten years since I've done a fair amount of work in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, I, I just want to know uh, how you are able to facilitate these discussions between, say, military archaeologists and academic archaeologists. I only say that because I was uh, at the meetings in San Francisco uh, talking to a couple of academics and military people. And I won't say that a fight broke out. But there are certainly some uh, divergences of opinion, would that be a diplomatic way of, of saying that, on how we as uh, the U.S. and our position overseas, especially in areas of conflict, how do we do that? How do we work together with uh, people who are basically thinkers more than they are, uh, for lack of a better word, doers. Uh, how do we, we cross-fertilize with them? Um, uh, let me ask you just, uh, um, Jim, a little bit on what your perspective is on that, because you, like I say, you, you, you have a fair amount of experience. Are you finding it's very difficult to bring these two sets of people together, and are we making any progress, or is it just uh, there's too much of a difference in orientation as well as perspective? Well, I think it may have started off that way. Uh, one of the things that I think that Dwayne could have mentioned that he didn't was that uh, back in 2003 time frame, we started a group that was called the CENTCOM Culture Heritage Advisory Group. Uh, CENTCOM is uh, the Central Command, um, and that was based out of uh, McDill Air Force Base in Florida. And uh, Dr. Lori Rush and Dr. Paul Green were really involved in that. I was one of the members, but I, I wasn't involved, and I'm still not as involved as Dwayne or Dr. Rush or Dr. Green. But um, because of the things that, that happened, in, particularly in Iraq and in, in uh, Afghanistan, with, uh, let's just say there were big mistakes made by the military that caused a lot of internal trouble in the countries, um, it became obvious that there were some a lot of training necessary for the troops and also for the planners. And one of the, that's why that group was formed by the, by the Army particularly, and then it became a DOD-wide group. But I think because of all of the, the looting um, with the problems at Babylon and that there's the ziggurat at, of, at Ur and other issues, that major problems in Iraq and some problems in, in Afghanistan, the military and the... Uh, the academics that care about that are able to to have common ground and can talk to each other quite well. And I think particularly Lori Rush is such a wonderful person and she's, she's, she's such a good trainer that she's able to go out and get people on board quite easily. And Dr. Green is uh, the primary person for the Air Force and he was working with the Air Combat Command and he still is to identify cultural and heritage uh, resources that should not be targeted. And because of that kind of work, they've been getting a lot of support from academic people. And now uh, he's got a program, Dr. Green has one called ORCID, where he does a lot of uh, preliminary work with maps and with um, contractors and with academics around the world, identifying important resources in countries where we are uh, setting up forward operating bases and things like that. And uh, he's gotten a lot of uh, traction with uh, academics around the world. And it wasn't that way even, I think it was in 2008, when there was the World Archaeological Congress in Dublin. 
uh, when they weren't treated very well. But now it, it's changed. I think it's gotten a lot better. Are you notice? Are you noticing that there's a spirit of cooperation more, and uh, that people are understanding that we're there, so we might as well do the best job we can, not just in terms of uh, preserving uh, sites and 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 maintaining and doing what we can to restore collections and museums, but also to bring uh, local populations into the mix and to interact with them in, uh, in a positive way to preserve heritage. I think those are things that are happening. Do you find that, you're making pro- that we're making progress with that? Um, Dwayne? Yes, I... <laughs> um, yeah, the... Uh, the what's now the... Uh, Combatant Command Culture Heritage Action Group uh, has made a lot of headway um, in uh, not only, uh, you know, getting inroads into finding um, academics that are willing to provide um, what we call reach-back support so that become subject matter experts where they, you know, help us identify sites and provide location information um, so that planners can take these uh, sites into account uh, and then um, avoid them uh, when necessary. Uh, we also also have um, made inroads into uh, uh, the military, where you know we've now got uh, training assets, um, training websites, uh, things of this nature to help uh, get the message out among uh, the soldiers and the airmen and the sailors um, that these things are important and uh, to protect and how to go about doing that when they're in theater or in, in the host country. Kristen, do you have any uh, overlap with that as well, or is, is most of your work basically domestic? No, um, you know, I feel like from the perspective of the Texas Guard, I can kind of provide, you know, specific examples of how I've seen a difference and in terms of the work that Lori Rush and, and others, Dr. Jim Zeidler have done in terms of preparing soldier field cards and playing cards that can go to out to soldiers and kind of educate them in uh, sort of easy access on cultural resource heritage protection. I mean, I have had soldiers in the Texas Guard that are deploying come and ask me for those and, and make sure that they get distributed and the, the ORCID mapping uh, program I've had um, some of our groups here that are deploying to different places um, also ask me for that information. So, so I see in my, you know that that soldiers are really getting um, educated. I mean, I think they're educated to begin with. I think they just want to. They need to have the resources to tell them what they need to do and, and kind of get the pointers. And, and it's getting out there. And um, you know. Um, I've just been really pleased in terms of the Texas Guard and seeing what their response and interest has been in terms of, you know, accessing these resources that I'm able to get. And and that's kind of what, you know, our our role here in the United States with our training sites here is we can kind of provide that cultural resource awareness for here. That's kind of a good training mechanism for them to keep in mind when they go overseas. If we say something's off limits here and explain why, then that's something that and say, hey, incorporate this into your training because you have these same guidance and rules that you need to follow when you go to other places, then, then that just makes their job easier when they get over to, to whatever it may be, whether it's conflict or disaster recovery or, or uh, you know, support operations. Well, uh, play that out a little more. Um, are you actually 
orienting uh, new guardsmen as they come into the bases and for training that these are the types of situations they need to deal with both domestically and internationally? Is that what you're seeing? Well, for, in my role, I'm mainly um, orienting them to, hey, if you're on the Texas Guard training sites, here's, here's the issues that you know you need to be aware of in terms of your training operations. And then just through interconnections with people in the Guard working, um, we've had uh, a couple of people here um, that have been helpful to uh, Dr. Rush and kind of learning more about how to train soldiers and, and get access to providing, you know, how do you get soldiers to, to get trained in cultural resource awareness. And so what we've had, we've had guards uh, folk that have, you know, um, contributed to, to some of Lori's work uh, and, you know, and then people that I work with will come to me and I'll say, well, hey, I have these, these are what's going on. And then word kind of goes out, but, but, you know, I don't train, I'm not a soldier training, you know, soldiers to deploy, but they do get, you know, guidance and rules and, and regulations on what they're supposed to be doing um, from a civil affairs perspective and from, um, you know, rules of engagement perspective. So, uh, Let me ask you this, James, in particular. Are you noticing that there's more sensitivity in terms of understanding other cultures and trying to integrate heritage sites and monuments and and the perspective that that brings together between, uh, say, members of the military and indigenous communities in other parts of the of the world, specifically in uh, Iraq and in Afghanistan. Well, I believe so. Um, partly because of the the events in Iraq and Afghanistan, the air. Their war college down in Maxwell Air Force Base started a new program uh, with a lot of classes about cultural sensitivity. And they came to us, actually, uh, partly because of the the CENTCOM and now the uh, COCOM, the Combat Command Culture Heritage Advisor or Action Group, but also because of our experience with uh, Native American consultations. And we worked together a bit. They, they set up some really interesting courses about um, sensitivity, cultural sensitivity and sensitivity to heritage that all the officers uh, have to take in the Air Force anyway. And I believe the other services have done something similar. Uh, Duane, are you finding the same thing? Um, repeat the question, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, I mean in terms of, of uh, sort of heightening sensitivity to cultural differences and understanding that uh, whatever the circumstances are, U.S. military is based in, uh, let's say, Iraq or Afghanistan or parts of Pakistan, and that these people are basically placed together. You might as well work together to make sure that monuments are preserved, that there's a sensitivity to cultural traditions, so that, uh, in a sense, that uh, U.S. military is not looked on as an intrusive outsider, but basic, which which they are, obviously, but they're trying to sort of make the situation better for everyone because circumstance bring them together. Yes, I think the military as a whole has realized that uh, that cultural awareness in general is an important uh, thing uh, to... Uh, um, you know, have as a uh, um, something to draw from when they're in country. Um, they do a little, some training on that before they uh, head over, and uh, um, they also we incorporate, um, or at least Lori uh, attempts to incorporate some of the cultural uh, heritage protection 
uh, material into the cultural awareness uh, training that these uh, guys get. Um, so, yeah, I think at, especially um, in the officer corps, they are more aware um, and more sensitive to these uh, situations than they have been in the past. But there is a need for that to trickle down to you know the on the ground soldiers as well, and I know I know I've seen it happen, and I think it's a very positive result that this sort of thing is happening. We'll be back with our final segment of the military, archaeology, and cultural resource management right after these words. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We have a very fascinating cast today, a panel discussion with uh, various uh, archaeologists, free archaeologists uh, in the U.S. military, various branches, um, and we have been talking about the, the topics that are of concern to archaeologists working in military installations, both domestically and abroad, and a number of the common themes that are pervasive when archaeology is done in federal military uh, lands here and abroad. One of the topics and one of the issues that I think has brought together a lot of people in the military and uh, folks all over the world really is uh, 
showing what the relationship of archaeology is to indigenous populations. And of course, in the United States and North America, references made to the Native Americans. I think uh, all of our panel people are familiar with NAGPRA, uh, the North American Graves and Repatriation Act, um, Protection and Repatriation Act. Um, let me start with... Um, Jim, what do you see the impact of NAGPRA having when uh, it, it bears upon military archaeology over the course of time? I mean, uh, the law goes back to, I think, 1990. What are you seeing? What are the positive effects of it? Well, it, the Air Force is, is not affected as much by NAGPRA as I think, especially the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, but because they've had collections a lot longer than we have. You know, we didn't start till 1947, and we took over some Army bases, but also built a lot of brand-new bases. Um, so we didn't have a, a long history of collections that were made prior to 1990, like the Corps and several other entities had. But um, if what we... Well, we we've, let's just go back to a little bit uh, about just uh, tribal relations. Uh, we just finished and published uh, a new Air Force instruction, which is kind of a regulation. It's our regulation. It's titled uh, Air Force Interactions with Federally Recognized Tribes. We published that in uh, in November last year. And it doesn't specifically mention NAGPRA, but what it does is, is it, it, it's, it attempts, and actually it mandates that um, base commanders and wing commanders get to know their tribes the tribes that they that they consult with constantly, and the people who used to live on the land that is now owned or controlled by the Air Force, and uh, that's a, a big cultural change in the Air Force. And it's we're just starting it. Um, it's working pretty well. There's a lot to it, but um, NAGPRA is part of that because often the only well in the past the, the interface between the tribe and the installation was a NAGPRA issue, and probably in most cases it was an, what we call an inadvertent discovery where right. somebody was excavating something and came up with some uh, human bones, or most likely it's human bones or some other bones, and we had to start consulting with the tribes about what to do with those. That, that for us, is our major interaction with tribes uh, outside of our annual meetings with tribes that all bases have, and now they're supposed to have two uh, annual or two times a year meetings with their affiliated tribes, so they get to develop a nice collaborative relationship. Well, you can see it. I mean, at the meetings, I mean, there are obviously Native Americans that are brought in to participate in symposia on traditional cultural properties, on the entire burial question. Um, I'm interested in your perspective on this, um, Kristen, because uh, Texas obviously has a tremendous amount of terrain and a lot of variable terrain with um, you know, extensive uh, Native American populations that uh, have stakes and are stakeholders in these particular issues. What is the nature of your uh, location's interaction with Native American groups and how does it impact the properties that you're associated with? Well, uh, we have a tribal consultation meeting coming up in a uh, couple weeks here. So, for us, um, it's been a—it's actually been a really positive relationship since the the beginning of NAGPRA when it came into effect. The the Texas Guard the uh, was really kind of 
went forward and, and handled that uh, responsibility in terms of communicating with the tribes about our existing collections that had already been uh, collected from archaeological inventories and, and working with tribes to let them know about what we had and, and making sure we complied with NAGPRA. And uh, we deal with right now approximately, well, we 11 tribes and we're in our upcoming consultation, we're actually going to expand that to 14 tribes. And um, we've been really pleased. We've repatriated uh, a ceramic vessel to the Caddo tribe uh, that came from Camp Maxi and uh, Caddo site up there. And uh, we, we were so kind of, the Texas Guard was so ahead of the curve that when we were doing archaeological inventories still at some of our sites and we encountered human remains, you know, we stopped and we contacted the tribes and we consulted with them and, you know, the decision was made to leave something in place. So our, our position has been really to, to work with our tribes because for them, a lot of them have been relocated out of the state. Um, and, and so we want to be good stewards for them of their heritage. And, and I, I see NAGPRA has, has really been a positive thing for, for our uh, military and, and everybody enjoys, you know, getting together. And, and it hasn't been, you know, I know it's been contentious in many cases in many different situations, but I think by being proactive and, and kind of listening to the tribes and working with them, you can find, you know, solutions and, and um, acknowledge, you know, their role in, in sort of um, defining how preservation should take place. Dwayne, what's your experience? Uh, well, the, um, I think... Uh, NAGPRA has um, been one of those laws that we've um, kind of used to our advantage here where we uh, impress upon the leadership that uh, through uh, consultation with the tribes, uh, the leadership can actually gain some experience with dealing with um, another culture without ever having to leave the boundaries of the United <laughs> States. Right, of um, course. So that's, they that's come in and actually you know, have a head of state meeting with, uh, say, the Tadadaho of uh, the Onondaga or, um, and meet with them and um, discuss uh, various issues uh, and come to an agreement. Um, uh, we have a very good relationship with our tribal partners. Uh, we pride ourselves on that and uh, we uh, uh, speak with them regularly uh, in more of a staff-to-staff um, uh, way more than a more formal way uh, more often. We pick up the phone and just call them up and, and talk to them about issues, um, whether or not, you know, we, we have inventories or we talk about uh, various fines or something, uh, you know, um, whether or not they want to be on site to monitor particular um, projects. Uh, so, we, yeah, we I think it's a, uh, we've, like I said, we have a very good uh, relationship with our tribes. On that same score, Dwayne, uh I'll get you on this first. Do you okay. see any issues that are particularly ubiquitous or issues that are especially striking in this day and age? I mean, it used to be the burials, the disturbances of, of, of potential, the analysis of, of burial remains, traditional cultural properties, holy sites, that kind of thing. What seems to be the major issues of contention and of negotiation, uh, say, in 2015? I think it's still traditional cultural properties and sacred sites uh, at the moment, um, trying to tease out from um, how uh, the tribes identify these and how archaeologists identify these. And I think that's where the contention actually comes from is the 
um, tribal archaeologists divide has nothing really to do with the, with the military. It's uh, more ingrained in the discipline of archaeology. I asked the question because each one of you is from a different part of the country. So, Kristen, what's your what's your feeling on this? I, I kind of agree, actually. I think the traditional co cultural property issue is, is becoming more important because traditionally we've done the archaeological surveys or we're in the process of doing them, and now we're sort of starting to acknowledge the need to do the traditional cultural property surveys, and, and actually a lot of the, the contention comes in on, like, archaeological sites, which, you know, tribes come in, and when they have that opportunity to inform, they say, hey, these are, we want you to, we, we think these sites are, need to be protected, whereas an archaeologist may have said, oh, it's, it doesn't need to be protected. And so I think there's more, you know, contention there, where our, you know, our command, I think, is very uh, supportive and has been really interactive with the tribes on making sure we meet our compliance issues with them. I think there's actually more contention in that traditional cultural property sacred site area and how you address that more from the, I would almost say more, not at the military perspective, but more at the, the academic versus, you know, I don't say versus, but academic and tribes, you know, or the archaeologists and tribes talking that out. So you're seeing, are you seeing conflict here? Or are you seeing a meeting of the minds? I'm, I'm I'm seeing like our tribes coming forward and saying like if we have to do new surveys, if we were to get new land or if we were going to go resurvey an area, like with our, they want those research designs now to be which were traditionally designed by archaeologists and, you know, maybe we sent them to the tribes to review, maybe we didn't. Now they want, hey, why don't we all go into this together and, and structure these inventories together so that we can, you know, investigate the sites together rather than than sort of maybe as an afterthought sending it to the tribes or, you know, the tribes come in at a different point and, and have to look at, at what's there and, and they're going to look and they look at it with a different set of perspectives and knowledge to, to inform. So I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily contentious. It's just that we just completed a traditional cultural property, which was a survey, which was really successful, but it was really interesting to see the recommendations that came out of that about how we need to go approach some of these archaeological sites that were in part of their prop the traditional cultural properties and how we should maybe move forward in in reinvestigating some some areas. James, are you seeing the same thing? Uh, definitely, uh, particularly uh, in relation to um, monitoring and and hiring tribal members to work as archaeologists. That uh, that I'd say is our biggest issue on on our ranges anyway, which are you know millions of acres, and that's where most of our surveys are done. Um, we we I participated in a lot of tribal consultations and, and one of the things the tribes always tell us at the beginning at the beginning of every consultation is a long litany of all the bad things the military's done to the <laughs> tribes over the, right. the decades. But but the uh, <clears throat> the other thing that they say is uh, you guys never listen and you don't know how to consult. And so we've tried. That's one reason we created that new AFI because we want to change the culture from sending a letter and saying that's consultation to um, starting to collaborate with the tribes, exactly what Kristen was talking about, where you bring tribes into the planning early for all kinds of projects, not just archaeological projects, but any project that will affect lands that they're interested in, and uh, and, and start them, to treat them as a collaborator. You know, what what can we do here? What shouldn't we do here? What should we pay attention to? And get a whole different perspective on 
on how to look at the lands and the resources out in the lands. Uh, like I said earlier, a lot of tribes, most tribes that I've dealt with, think of natural resources as cultural resources. They don't see sure. any difference. So, right. so it's how we it's how we manage those things and and allow them access to those things that's really important to them. Sort of a sort of an overarching human ecological perspective, and essentially getting people in on the ground floor rather than as an afterthought. And I think that's obviously a very positive note on which to end. <laughs> uh, we have reached the end of our hour, and I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. James Wild, of the U.S. Air Force Civil Engineer Center. Uh, Kristen Mountjoy of a cultural resources specialist, Army National Guard, Camp Mabry, and Dwayne Quates, a federal archaeologist of the U.S. Army facility at Fort Drum. Thank you all so very much for participating in the program. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for asking. And we will see all of you, or you will hear from us, shall we say, next time, uh, next week, same time, same place. And until then, the past being a positive guide to the future, archaeology should always be somewhere in your thoughts as you are thinking about the human condition. Thank you very much and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.